Hi everyone, today I have Simini Kriyaku with me from Financial Advisor. Hi Simini. Hi there Catherine, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, how are you? We're all grand, we're all grand. Brilliant. Simini is joining me to talk about lead gen firms that aren't maybe operating in the most client-friendly ways. Uh, what's happening in our industry to tackle these things happening and what to look out for. And also we're going to be chatting about their recent diversity and inclusion awards. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So let's start off then, Simini. How are you doing? What's the latest with you? Well, the latest with me, uh, we took on two cats during lockdown. That was good. Nice. Um, so I'm sort of working from home, as most people are, um, on Financial Advisor um, five days a week and looking after my child two days of those week in addition and looking after the cats five days a week in addition to that. So uh, if anything creeps into Financial Advisor that people think shouldn't be there, there's, there's probably reasons for it. So you've also got the husband as well, that you know, obviously is there as well to be took care of. I've got the husband, but, but, <laughs> but thank, thankfully he can mostly look after himself now and he's quite potty trained uh, by now. So that's, that's, uh, that's a help. That's a help. Absolutely. Absolutely. So each week we do have a truth or life feature on the podcast. And last time my dad said that his favorite James Bond film is Goldfinger. And I said that mine was Quantum of Solace. And the, the trick is to figure out who do you think was telling the truth? I think your dad may be telling the truth. I think you may be telling a lie because I don't know any woman who thinks Quantum of Solace is good, even though it's got Daniel Craig in. I think every woman really likes the Casino Royale with, with uh, Daniel Craig. Did I say Craig David? I meant Daniel I've Craig. Known, I think he said, I'm not sure. One of the two. The one that doesn't sing. Maybe he does sing. I saw him once in the street. We gave each other an, an eyeball until I realized who it was. That was <laughs> Well, Daniel Craig, was, say, was, not Craig David. Okay, I was thinking, I'm getting so confused. Right. So, um, so you are right in the fact that my dad was telling the truth. Absolutely. Goldfinger is his uh -huh. ultimate film. And I was saying a lie. My actual favorite is Live and Let Die. Nice. So, I, I love was, that one. Yeah. I was brought up with the James Bond films. So I have to say childhood crush was Roger Moore. And um, yeah, Live and Let Die. Absolutely. So it's that scene, isn't it? In Harlem. And they're walking through the streets in Harlem. Yep. It, yeah, for, for me, it's well, the main thing on that one, it's the end on the train. Oh. And he's, you know, they're going away in the train and he's still there. And that just completely, it really freaks me out as a kid. But then obviously it was just like, oh, that's amazing. Um, but yes, yes, we'll move on. So I think a lot of our listeners um, are going to have heard about you speaking um, with really quite clear passion about your work in tackling the not so good side of lead gen firms. And something I want to say as well very early on is that we're not saying all lead gen firms, but just that we're getting some as in any kind of organization, you know, there are good ones and bad ones and we're getting some that are really starting to stand out now. So can you give everyone a little bit of a backstory about this side of thing, please? Yeah, sure. Um, in about 2010, 2011, we were writing a lot about lead gen firms um, because they were sort of, they seem to be springing up all over the place and not all of them seem to be operating in a very fair, transparent and not misleading fashion. So, um, when RDR came in, in um, 2013, they seemed to go underground. A lot of the lead gen firms seemed to go very, very quiet. And, um, you know, they sort of, they didn't kind of crop up that much on our radar. Every now and then they did. Um, but when it, uh, when COVID um, sent the UK into lockdown, 
started to see a lot more adverts cropping up on people's timelines. I think you've mentioned this as well yeah. um, on your Facebook and Twitter feeds. And um, sort of insurance marketing company Rocketer um, started to do some collation, like look at the, the data analysis on some of these and where they're coming from. And found that um, because sort of advertising rates were so low um, during the first sort of few weeks of lockdown, people have just been pulling ads um, right, left and centre that people like Facebook and, and other sort of social media sites were offering some good deals to anyone who would take them up on it. And unfortunately, that sort of gave almost free reign for um, kind of some spur spurious uh, lead generation firms to, to come into the come into the ether, as it were. And as you say, it's not all lead gen firms, but there have been some quite, um, how should we say, scaremongering tactics employed. And I, I think that's that's a real worry. People are, are already scared, and, and people are very, very scared in March and April because we just did not know what was going to happen. And every day you turn on the news and it seems to be something worse. And you suddenly see these lead gen ads popping up. It, it sort of targets you when you're, very vulnerable and that's that's a danger in itself yeah absolutely as you say I, I definitely got them and I started um making a little bit of noise um about, about it because it just it really got to me like you say you know it was March April time and all of a sudden obviously I won't name names um, but all of a sudden I was getting targeted ads on social media especially Facebook and Obviously, I, I live in the same area as my husband, as you can imagine, and he wasn't getting them on his Facebook accounts. So the, the first thing there was, okay, okay, so what they're doing is at the moment, they're targeting which, probably with children in this area. And it just, it felt so, so wrong that they would be doing that. And it was that kind of thing of, well, I mean, I know at the end of the day, some people are probably listening to think, well, it's, a, it's business, you know, you need to get over it. It's what businesses do, you know, they need to make money, they're going to do these tactics. But it's also, it's just, it's just not right. And I, I mean, I, I just couldn't do that. And I, I know people have said to us before, do you do Facebook advertising? Do you do this? Do you do that? And it was the case of, well, we do put out there what we do. But for, for us, obviously, we're very different to a lot of companies. But for us, it's really awkward because I said to them, well, what do I do then? Do I put out an ad on Facebook saying, you know, do you have multiple sclerosis? I can step in and help you. It just never yeah. felt right to do it that way but anyway um but so obviously we're not a, a lead gen firm so <laughs> we'll uh, we'll move back onto the main topic um so obviously there's been a lot of work um being done and you know i remember seeing you on a, on a talk i can't remember the name of the exact one but a talk recently and you just very very clearly like looked at the camera and said <laughs> i will find you and there was no hiding from me and it was amazing and it really did it really did sort of i feel like okay i'm not going to get on the wrong side of simony but what, <laughs> what kind of um what kind of things can we do to improve the standards within this area i mean what kind of tactics are generally being used by these lead gen mm -hmm. that are catching people out yeah i think i'll start with, with that first you know sort of look at the tactics they're employing some of the tactics i mean i already mentioned that it's scaremongering yeah. Two, you've mentioned that it's kind of almost targeting and tailoring. So they're using data. And for all the furor that was created over Cambridge Analytica and even now with the recent Channel 4 um, investigation into how data has been used in the uh, 2016 American elections, mm -hmm. we know that our data is being used and abused um, to target us. So um, if women are being targeted, if people who have known disabilities or who talk about it on social media are there being targeted. Um, this is a, a very dangerous thing to do. 
um, particularly at a time when people have people's anxiety is increased um, I, I think I was talking to someone from um, I think it was mind a few weeks ago saying that whereas before you'd say maybe one in every four people in the UK on average would have um, a mental ill health episode they were starting to see one in every two people reporting heightened levels of anxiety um, and um, a sort of feeling um, depression, not necessarily clinical uh, depression, but having episodes or depressive episodes. So people's mental ill health, uh, mental health is very fragile at the moment. And if you are preying on people by using tactics such as, oh, um, you know, th th in this sort of pandemic, the worst could happen. You could be without a job. Um, you could be... Uh, you could get very, very ill and unable to work. Who's going to look after your children? Or in worst case, you know, with, with life um, insurance, just sort of saying, you know, women your age and your area can get life insurance for £10 a month. Mm. Um, and you think, well, that sounds really good. Um, and, of course, we know that's, that's not true. I mean, all you have to do is go onto an actual insurer's uh, website and use their sort of online calculators to know that actually what's tailored for you could be very, very different. Your life insurance, um, if, if it's only £10 a month, it's probably not very good. <laughs> you know, what are the terms and conditions? You know, is it tailored to you? Is, is it appropriate? So at best, at the very best, people could use those scaremongering adverts to get some form of protection place that they never had before. Mm. At worst, they're getting something that's completely inappropriate, totally um, ends up being far more expensive when they actually sort of fill in all the questionnaires and then go through. Um, and on top of that, their data isn't just being shared with one company, it's being shared with three or four different companies. So you have no idea how your data is being used. I could give this thinking, well, this is just insurer A who's used this lead gen firm. Actually, I could be, have my data shared with 10 different financial advisors buying those leads. And the data could be going out to three or four different um, insurance companies, all of whom start talking to me. And it might make me so confused that A, I may never get the insurance I need because it'll just put me off and um, B it could put me off financial advice altogether yeah. so you could end up in a completely worse financial situation and that's why I think these lead gen ads are, are completely I'm, I'm trying to think of a polite way of, of saying what I want to say irresponsible? Um, uh, irresponsible is a good word to use um, in some ways that might be being a bit kind to um, the worst offenders. I think the worst offenders are actually cruel to prey on people who are emotionally vulnerable at this stage. I think it is cruel. And um, it, could, yeah, it, it could put people off financial advice um, forever. And that's a, that's a terrible thing as well. To mean, it means that someone could end up in a, a worse financial state um, than they started out or put off from getting financial advice leaving their own families unprotected should the worst happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, there was something that I've seen quite a few bits about. And I think, I think it's, it is one of those things that are like an absolute no, 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 no. So maybe it's a good thing for companies to know just in case they're doing it and don't realize, but isn't there something as well about people using like the image of national insurance cards and passports in like in that outreach and they're like, they're really not meant to do that. Are they? Mm, yeah. It's, you always see that at sort of at the bottom, if you're reading a, a, a newspaper article, it sort of has it at the bottom saying, 
people in Merton have been trying this trick or people aged 60 to 70 have been looking and it's got the NI card um, there, which almost makes it look like it's official. Yeah. A bit government linked. Uh, or this something. is government linked. Yes. It's, oh, it's it's national insurance. That must that must be safe. Mm. Um, you know, it's like the, the the FCA quite recently has been um, discouraging people from using their logo on its website um, because that's not meant to be be used in in, in that uh, in that way. Um, it sort of almost gives people like a quality assurance mark if they see an NI card or they see um, a close up of a. HMRC or a tax office mm. thing it makes it look official so yeah that there's a real um there's a real perception issue and it's these sort of things that makes the general consumer distrust insurance yeah. or distrust the whole financial services market just at a time where we're trying to rebuild and restore trust you know we get every every few years we sort of get to a stage where people yes I, I trust financial advisors with my money and then suddenly something like this happens and they just sort of go straight back into this shell. Yeah. They will oh, stick it under my bed then because I don't trust anyone. You're all out to get me. This is, this is what they will, this is what the average consumer will say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say my parents are exactly the same. And, um, I obviously I work in financial services and, you know, I do all the steps to make sure the people I'm working with are, you know, reputable and that I'm comfortable. And, you know, potentially if I signpost people to people, I make sure that I'm comfortable with that person. And with my mum and dad, I've tried so hard, so, so, so hard to get them to look at some financial advice. And my mum just does that thing where she just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, somebody will be chatting to her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it's just like afterwards and, you know, sorry to finish chatting to her and she's just like, nope I'm quite happy with what I'm doing thank you and you're just like oh you know and it's just because I mean she just doesn't trust anyone she doesn't even trust the banks so you know she just doesn't trust anybody at all with money and so you know there is there is those people that are you know but that's from that's from her hearing about people who had things go wrong with them and again people who are given wrong advice or maybe not had things to explain to them like people she works with who maybe invested money into ISAs or something through the bank. And it wasn't clearly explained to them that it was like a stocks and shares ISA. And all of a sudden, all the money went. So that made my mum very, very nervous of doing that. With You know, it's, it, there's just so many little things, I think, that can add up in different areas across financial services that then gets lumped upon anybody who's working in finance. One, so like a bad experience one place is kind of seen as a bad experience everywhere. Yeah. Um, what do you think it is that lead gen firms are kind of trying to achieve in a sense? I mean, clearly they're trying to get leads, but do you yeah. think that there's, that there's anything extra that they're trying to do? Or Let's, let's say that um, we are reputable lead gen firms. Let's say that we think that we have the technology and the NAS to be able to put people in touch with insurers and with advisors that can give them advice. We may believe, and I'm being really um, generous here, we, we may believe that we can um, improve people's access to the financial products they need, that we can act as the middleman, the introducer. Um, we can put uh, Mrs. Miggins of Hinchley Lane in touch with the right financial advisor and with the right investment product and the right insurance product and that'll do her very nicely because Mrs. Miggins wouldn't have been able to get this otherwise. She wouldn't have known where to go. So we could think of ourselves as signposters, um, introducers, yeah. middle, the middle makers, they're the matchmen. 
the the silla black of the financial services world you know going back to lead gen so lead gen i think really need to um so that if they're doing that if they're performing that role i think they need to do it very responsibly and very uh with a very straightforward manner and say this is what we're going to do this is where we're going to pass your data um thank you mrs miggins so we have four insurers that are on our books we are going to pass your details with your permission to all these four insurers could you please sign um, a form saying you're happy for us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also signpost you to three advisors in your area. One, two, three. Um, you, are you happy for us to do that as well? And they may contact you. That I think is being open about it. But generally, I think obviously they're out to make money because let's face it, no one does things purely out of altruism. Mm. Um, you know, they're not charities, they're not social workers they're out to make a buck for themselves. So the fact that Mrs. Miggins doesn't know that her data is going to three or four different insurers, she doesn't know that when she gets a call from one financial advisor that that she's not going to get a call from another financial advisor from a different firm. Um, Quite often these, uh, you'll get a phone call from someone saying, oh, we're we're calling from your insurer. You're like, which one? They're like, oh, well, you know, we work with Scottish Widows, we work with yeah. Agar. You're like, really? Well, which one of those is my insurer? What's my policy number? You know, absolutely. But people don't always have the nous to say that. And in the middle of a pandemic, when you've got a million other things on your mind, you hear the words life insurer on the phone, you may well think the worst has happened. Mm. Um, it, I, I think all, all lead generation firms if they are doing a service they need to be really really open about everything yeah and then i think people would go into it with their eyes open and say okay fair enough i appreciate i could get up to four or five calls from different people um but if it saves them having to shop around and all they have to do be, be is reactive and answer the phone um then that might suit some yeah. individuals. Uh, but i i can't always blame financial advisors for using lead gen firms uh, quite often if you are a sole trader, particularly, you may need to use lead gen because you are so busy, you're inundated, even in lockdown, um, when you're doing Zoom calls rather than driving halfway up the M1, mm. you still might be really, really ultra busy. You've got loads of forms to fill in. Um, you've got loads of admin and paperwork and regulatory matters to deal with. So I can understand why they might say, well, for a portion of my business, I'd quite like to buy some leads. Yeah. And you may not investigate that. You may not want to interrogate where those leads are coming from or how they're generated. But I think, I, I hope that with the noise that we're making in the industry, and I know um, AIG has been very uh, strong in um, looking into this, and yes. uh, Rocketer, and quite a few firms have um, come up and said, look, here's some data on it. We really need to start tacking this. I think the noise um, might make financial advisors wake up a little bit more and say, this is, right, I better just check where my leads are, are coming from and how they're being generated. And it'll give them the opportunity to move to someone who's a bit more reputable or to find other ways of getting those leads in. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think, you know, advisor due diligence um, about knowing where these leads are coming from is absolutely is absolutely essential you know because as you say there's some people need to buy leads in especially possibly if you're a startup as well you know it may be that you don't have lots of people coming to your website or to you through different means in the local area and then to start building up your portfolio you may buy some leads in and, and, and there's nothing wrong with doing that because ultimately you are buying a service but it's just making sure mm-hmm. that when the, the people that you are using are obviously um as you say reputable 
So I think it's fair to say as well that, like we just mentioned before, improving the, in, the image of financial services is something that all of us are, are constantly trying to do. And um, it's probably why this you know, sort of like what's been happening with the lead gen firms over the last few months, especially, is like really started to stand out. Um, what's happening in the industry, just for people to know, so what is happening in the industry in a sense to tackle all of this? I know you've mentioned, obviously, there's been some studies and data analysis. Is there anything sort of kind of intense coming up or anything? Or, you know, sort of like a little bit, there's going to be more sort of like, there's going to be rules maybe in place to say, right, well, this is a no and this is yes or something. Um, there have been calls um, for some uh, rules and for some regulation. I think you probably saw the protection review yeah. um, report on this and, you know, calling for sort of better verification and some underlying standards to be put in place so that there can be better checking. Uh, advisors can feel more confident that the leads they're getting are from reputable uh, and verifiable sources. Um, and knowing that uh, for the consumer's point of view, knowing that their data is um, being protected as a result of these uh, more stringent checks, that's, that's a very important thing to do. Um, I, I don't know quite how far along um, we are with that, but I, I really would, would hope that that's already been put in place. A lot of um, firms have sort of signed up to that or, or, or not necessarily signed up to it. What, they, they sort of come out in support of it and said, yes, they'd be very um, pleased to see something like that happen. I think one problem we have is that although the FCA is really strong on consumer protection, the FCA does not regulate um, protection. Yeah. It does regulate some areas of the insurance market, but it doesn't regulate protection. I think it's only a matter of time before they do. Yeah. Um, and with the RDR, they said, well, we won't regulate protection because we understand protection is sold and not bought. Therefore, you need to have commission structures in place um, as an incentive for people yeah. to buy um, insurance. And so they said they wouldn't regulate it as part of RDR. Uh, but I know currently the Treasury is looking at the whole of the, the retail financial services market and how it's regulated. Mm. And um, there are calls from the PFS, the CII, um, from the Association of Mortgage Intermediaries, from all these bodies to have a more holistic um, financial advice market review uh, to bring in mortgages within that scope to bring in insurance within that scope if we have FAMA too it will bring insurance in and I know that in my working life I will see the FCA start to regulate um, protection yeah. you can you can see it coming in its sector review earlier this year I love the um, I love the reviews it puts out every sort of January February because it looks holistically at everything where protection has fallen down and it had pages and pages on um, healthcare, critical illness uh, cover products, how complicated the wording is, mm. how complicated um, income protection can be, why is it undersold, um, why is it underbought, what are the, uh, the barriers to entry on IP. The FCA doesn't regulate that so why is it looking at it in a sector report? It's looking at it because it needs to understand it. It needs to understand it because it's seen that there can be consumer detriment in those areas. Mm. It will not be long before the FCA starts to regulate them. So it's it, something that people really need to... If you, get on, if you get on board now, if you make sure you tidy up your leads, you tidy up, you, you get your verification um, 
you get the protections you sign up to or you you adhere to the guidelines that have been laid down by people like protection review um to make sure that you know where all your leads are coming from everything's traceable everything's trackable track and trace track and trace yeah. leads, you know. <laughs> but not the uh, government system let's just not the government system, no, because as we know, that data has been used <laughs> um, for spurious advertising purposes. You know, it's yep. been sold out. I, I knew this would happen. You know, I knew, uh, it, it should surprise nobody. And this is a, one thing that the, the conspiracy theorists really get me. They, they use their mobile phones to complain about track and trace and say how oh, they would never do track and trace because the government's got all your data. Yeah. And they're posting it from their Android or from their... Uh, Huawei or or, or, um, <laughs> or the iPhone, thinking you, you've got a locator chip in your phone. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows where you've been. What, I mean, nothing unless you're completely off grid. Nothing is uh, nothing is sacred anymore. But we don't live in an off grid world. We live in an interconnected world. That's true. Um, but in terms of financial services, uh, that that can actually be a good thing if everything is used in the in the right way. And you know, using that data, the sort of big data that you can get. Um, can be sort of applied in an intelligent way um, to market more effectively to the right people mm. and to market the right product and the right service to the right target audience um, in a fair and honest and not misleading way. And that's what I would like to see. And I'm sure that's where the FCA is going to go. Absolutely. I mean, what kind of risks do financial advisors face if they're not checking um, how legitimate the leads are. I mean, especially if the firm that they're using is non-regulated. From my understanding, if, if you are buying leads in, um, if you're buying it from a regulated firm, there is some kind of level of protection as a financial advisor. But if you are buying them and sourcing them from non-regulated firms, then that means that in a sense, if anything isn't necessarily above board, then that's going to fall upon the advisor themselves who's um, buying them. Is that right? Well, yes. I mean, you mentioned the words due diligence, and that's the absolutely critical thing here. Like if a financial advisor has done his or her due diligence on anything that he or she has bought from a regulated, well-known insurance firm, and the insurer has done something wrong that the IFA could not have known about and that the consumer could not have known about, then the burden of fault lies with the insurer. Mm-hmm. And it can be provably so, and the compensation um, uh, schemes will kick in, and uh, and that will be quite, which well, should be quite straightforward. However, the client is still the advisors. Mm. Whether the client ends up with an unregulated or a regulated product, or has gone through a regulated or unregulated um, introducer, the client belongs to the advisor. So therefore, the advice is regulated. So the advisor is still liable for wrong advice mm. or mi- misadvice. Um, it doesn't mean to say that the, the advisor has been dodgy. Um, mm. Quite often they have done everything in good faith. Um, but there is a case of not doing your due diligence. If you have gone with unregulated lead introducers and um, you haven't checked, you haven't done your due diligence, then the, bo- the, the burden is on you. Um, the client is yours yeah. and the, the the regulators will not see it like that and if it has to go to it may even go to courts you know you could end up in the small claims court so you can't rely on um you can't rely on sort of washing your hands and saying well i knew that my client needed a good life insurance product but i didn't know that the lead gen person was dodgy and not doing their mm. 
duty properly. I think there's enough, we should know enough now to not be able to claim ignorance. And what was it? Ignorance is no defence in law, mm. um, really. And I think, you know, anyone trying to rely on the ignorance defences is probably trying to, uh, <laughs> probably not going to be very successful in using that as a, as a defence. Absolutely. Uh, my parents were police officers and yeah that was always something that they would say is that ignorance is no no defense whatsoever what do you recommend to to people that are listening you know if, if there's somebody is offering them uh, leads to buy I mean I have to say I, I'm absolutely fed up with the amount of messages I get on LinkedIn saying I really think it'd be nice for us to, to sort of like get to know each other you know we're in our same network and I think oh fantastic yeah let's say hi and then the next you know a few days or so you just get messages upon messages if like I've got amazing leads and you're just like Okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we don't buy leads, so it's, it's just something that doesn't, um, isn't sell for ourselves. But what should, for, for, for firms and advisors who are buying leads, is there anything that they should be looking out for that's a sign of, yeah, that possibly is coming from an okay source? And then anything that makes should be sort of like a red flag to go, mm, I'm not too sure if that's necessarily been done completely right. Yeah, I think, first of all, look at the priorities of your firm. If you're concentrating on lead generation rather than protecting your existing clients and making sure that their reviews are all done and that they're up to date and that their policies are renewed, if you're concentrating on those clients and everything is hunky-dory, then fine, you can start looking for new leads. But if you're not paying attention to policy lapses, um, if you're not looking after your existing clients, then what's the point of getting new leads? Mm. Um, you're sort of, you're just sort of almost plugging a, 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 or sort of putting a sticking plaster over a very, very leaky hole, you know, get, um, concentrate on client retention before lead generation. Yeah. Um, I think you also need to be careful about uh, clawback rates as well. If you aren't paying attention to, where your leads are coming from, mm. um, there is a great likelihood that these policies will be cancelled uh, or that the client will just ditch them after a year or so and you could be liable for huge clawback rates. So again, there's a financial, there should be a financial disincentive for just using any old um, lead generator. I mean, where you can, try and find out how many other financial advisors in your area have used them. Yeah. Speak to your insurers that you um, that you have signed uh, agreements with them. Um, ask them, do they ever do any business with this X, Y, and Z lead generator? Um, do a very quick internet search. See if there's been anyone complaining about them. Yeah. You know, have a look on um, warnings. I mean, speak to Protection Review. Maybe they know if anyone's um, sort of been flagged to them as a potentially disreputable yeah. person look on places like uh, trust pilot or vouched for see if there's any information on there um use your network to find out what you can about them just like you would when you just wouldn't pick up the the very first uh, card that comes through your door saying dodgy geezer roof company you just wouldn't say oh i'm gonna ring up dodgy geezer roof company he's got a nice shiny ad he's just stuck through my door no you yeah. you look on trust pilot you um, look at checker trade, you see what work they've done in the area, you check the local Facebook groups to see what this person's like. And then if everyone's saying amazing things about him or her, it gives you a sort of sense of confidence that actually they'll they'll do a decent job on your roof. You just wouldn't 
No. If you wouldn't trust someone with your house, why would you trust your client's financial futures um, with, with someone? So I think you need to be very careful about that. I'm not saying don't use lead gen. I'm just saying you've got to be very careful about where you get them from. And, and the information is all out there. Yeah. It's all out there. It's not, it's not all hidden. You don't have to sort of do funny handshakes in order to find out, you know, the truth about a company. It's, it's, it's all there on the internet for everyone to see. Well, fantastic. Thank you so many for giving, obviously, that background and all that information to us. Uh, we're going to sort of like have a little bit of a chat on some other things quite quickly before we finish up. But you recently had your Diversity and Inclusion Awards, which was brilliant. And I was really happy, obviously, that um, we were able to, to sort of that we, we stood out in a couple of the categories. How was it doing the diversity? I mean, it's a huge thing at the moment, isn't it? Diversity and inclusion. Yeah. It seems to be everywhere. I mean, how was it for, for doing that? I mean, what were the entries like? It was really quite exciting because um, when we sort of came up with this idea in 2017, 2018, um, I hadn't gotten pregnant. So I was really sort of excited to do the first one in 2019. Uh, and then I obviously I, I, I got knocked up. So, um, <laughs> so I got knocked up. I mean, it was very carefully planned through IVF process. So, um, yeah. so basically, I missed the very first inaugural um, diversity award. So I was really looking forward to this year's entries and um, when I saw the range and quality and depth of the entries submitted across all the categories I I was actually quite blown away because you sort of expect actually a little bit of tick box mentality um, with this like oh yeah diversity we've hired a woman to the board or Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah we changed the sort of language in our um, adverts to show that we're more flexible Um, I mean, those are sort of easy win-win situations. But these companies had gone over, and and yourself obviously included, that's why uh, Cura Cura won those two awards. You know, just that extra work put in to make um, the workforce not just diverse, but to feel included, for that everyone um, could feel that they're part of something big, they're part of something better, that there's career progression, um, that the work for, uh, workplace is a safe and um, encouraging environment for them to thrive in. And then on top of that, you know, to use that as a springboard to reaching out into communities, into the local area. Um, obviously, smaller companies tend to have a, a, a smaller, more local reach, but the, yeah. the impact that some small companies can have on um, their in, immediate locality is is absolutely amazing and then seeing how some of the larger firms had been able to replicate that in different locations around the UK and sort of reaching out to different charities and partnering with um, sort of autism um, societies or to to, to partner with um, neurodiverse agencies to help think about ways to improve uh, the workplace and improve the client experience I just thought those things were really fascinating things that perhaps I'd never even thought of before because we can all sort of sit back on our laurels and say yeah we're diverse you know we we would never actively discriminate Um, but sometimes you have to challenge yourself and think well am I passively discriminating am I being lazy in the way I'm hiring am I being um lazy in the way i'm going about uh, my recruitment um am i just saying that everyone, you know I, so many times in my life you know i i was turned down for promotional opportunities and actually one guy i don't know if he even knew that i was engaged to um george at the time he actually because george and i um have worked in the same base he actually said to george 
oh, I'm so sick of like trying to hire female um, editors because they just go off and have babies all the time. And he said that to George, who was engaged to me at the time, and I had gone for a job. Right. Uh, that guy is no longer there. Um, yeah. And the, the company is no longer there, and I am editor. And I, to be honest, actually, I have never felt so supported in my workplace that I do now. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. We've got a really great managing editor, managing um, my editor-in-chief, I should say, who's, who's my direct boss. Uh, an amazing... Um, like overall sort of director he's 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 in um he's based in the u.s but he's so hands-on and he's really he's a really good guy he listens he reacts um i think you know i mean the ft has always been a really great place to work but personally i feel really supported um as a female in the workplace as a female mother in the workplace yeah um but you know i've worked in other places where they said oh you can't work from home it's impossible to work from home you know you're just you'll just be there sort of watching TV or good morning TV all day. You're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and now COVID has made everyone work from home. And it's suddenly all these little lies that traditional employers have used saying, oh no, the role requires someone to be in the office. Mm. Basically the role requires a man who doesn't have to be at home working after the kids. That's basically sort of, um, that's, that, that's how it's been, you know, uh, you know, you can have a career or you can have kids. You can't have both. Yeah. Um, so I think COVID has kind of knocked that lie right out of the window and um, and I don't think it'll ever be able to be accepted back in the workplace so when I sort of see the way that these companies had not just taken those sort of old tropes and thrown them away but put in new systems new standards employed new agencies worked with uh, charities and third parties even brought in um, sort of specialist external consultants to scrutinize and examine their own policies. Have we done things the right way? Mm. Um, and if we haven't, find where we've done wrong, tell us how we can do things better. That takes a lot of humility. Yeah. And to see huge companies um, who you might think, oh, yeah, these companies are big nameless, nameless faceless organizations actually really sort of checking their own um checking their own privilege and just making sure that they were doing the right thing and, that, and getting other people to verify it i thought that was amazing i was i was really really impressed really impressed with that and it's given me a great deal of encouragement for the way things will go in the future that we're not just going to pay lip service to things like diversity and inclusion we're actually going to make a workforce and a workplace work for everyone not just now, but in the future. I think that, that, that was amazing. It was really encouraging. I think it's one of those things as well, you know, obviously we, we've been chatting about it at different times. And I think a big thing as well is the fact that it's, you know, when people say diversity and inclusion, I think a lot of people immediately think gender and race. And then don't seem to think about all the extra stuff as well. There's some perfect things that you were just saying there as well. So, I mean, there's obviously there's gender, there's race, there's religion, there's sexuality, there's age and there's health. And obviously like one of the things that you were saying there, and I, I was on a podcast, I did um, one of my first ones that I did was with Mike Adams from the organization Purple. And like he said, you know, he'd been into so many organizations for so many years where they've said, we can't possibly, you know, basically you're saying to us that we should hire more people with disabilities who maybe can't get into the workplace. We can't possibly adapt to them working from home all the time. It's just not what we do. Mm. And he said, you know, it's probably not too far into lockdown, but he just said within two days, this country changed into a work at home. And 
I mean, it, it, that's a real kick in the teeth for everybody who's been told, you know, mothers or people with disabilities or any other situation. I'm sure I'm probably missing lots of situations when I'm saying that. But, you know, for them to say sort of like, no, you can't work from home. And it's like, well, no, actually we can. I mean, it could be as well, even people, if they maybe have to travel significant distances on commutes, mm. you know, they may be staying away from the family home for most of the week in a city and then going back at the weekend, you know, they're missing out on so much time with the family. Yeah. And I think as well, a lot of the time, you know, because people sometimes ask me because about different things that we do to adapt for our team and different things. And it's often, it's not necessarily huge things. A lot of the time it is just speaking to somebody mm-hmm. and saying, right, what can we do to help you to make this more of a, you know, sort of like of a company that you would want to stay with forever in a sense, you know, and it can just be the simplest, simplest things that you change. And I know one of the examples I like to use, and it's um, maybe, you know, obviously it wouldn't necessarily suit everybody, but, you know, we've got a couple in our team, a couple of um, guys who, you know, they do seasonal sports. You know, one of them really likes to play hockey. One of them likes to do football. And, you know, they'll say to us, and they always ask each year, they'll just say, you know, is there any chance that I can maybe change my hours on this day and that day each week just so I can be part of the local team and it's just like yeah you know it's like it's, it, yeah absolutely if you're gonna if you just need to move your hours around a little bit that's fine you know it's, it's not huge amounts it's maybe an hour earlier finish one day and they'll work at, at that extra hour somewhere else in the week and you find that people really like that and as well they're going to find that the next you know if they are thinking of maybe you know oh well you know, I was thinking, should I move, you know, try something new or something? They're not going to find that. Well, in the, there's not many places that would do that. And they know then that you care about how they are and also the health in that situation, you know, the yeah, being, being fit, which is really good. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's those little things. It doesn't have to be like technology that's thousands upon thousands of pounds. It doesn't have to be an inconvenience. It can just be a really simple talk and then just a simple change yeah absolutely and um i know another thing we were going to chat about as well i know you mentioned it obviously we do speak a lot about insurance obviously on this Mm -hmm. podcast and it is an insurance we're going to chat about that's that's not necessarily my specific area but uh, i know you said with the ivf that you had some private medical insurance and different things so how did that work for you and what was that experience like yeah, so um, with uh, with our office, as I said, the FT is a great place to work because they do um, they give you really good benefits and um, they do try and find ways of making a va- if they value you, which they they do value their staff, they will find ways of making things work well for you. Um, so um, they have PMI and uh, it's a it's a good benefit. Obviously, it's it's a benefit um, that that's taxable. Mm-hmm. So you know it does come with a um, a, a slight cost in terms of your, your your tax code, but obviously it doesn't cover things like if you're going to have implantation or if you're going to have um, hospital stays because of IVF. It doesn't cover IVF, not our one. I think there are some policies that that may well do, and it would be great if more health policies covered IVF because there are a host of associated things that happen as a result of um, the IVF treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, that you'd need to to, to have cover for. Um, But the support service has been great because I felt that I could sometimes just call up the nurses and say to them, look, I'm really struggling um, at work. Um, When I did get pregnant, I was like, I'm really struggling at work. My back is really killing me. Um, You know, 
need to speak to the occupational health, but I don't really know what to ask for. I don't, you know, I don't want to just be given a few exercises. What sort of things can I expect? Uh, what might happen? Um, what can I do to put in place things that will last me through the course of my, my pregnancy while I'm in the office? And they're really, really helpful. You know, they gave you really good advice. These, these are trained nurses, trained yeah. nursing professionals that, that are on the other end of the line. And I would encourage anyone to look at what workplace um, benefits you've got. If you've got a, a good insurance, whether it's group um, income protection or PMI, and it comes with the ability to pick up a phone and call a nurse, yeah. that, that's amazing. Um, but I mean, there, there were quite a lot of issues. I, I had quite a lot of issues with um, my IVF and there are certain elements that could not be, that, that even my, and I went to a, a really sort of a, a quite expensive clinic up in London because um, we couldn't do it on the NHS, we had to go privately. Um, even they didn't have a lot of the equipment um, that was needed to sort of look at other things that might be wrong. So for things like a specialist equipment, even though it was, I was undergoing IVF, my PMI covered consult consultations with Harley Street doctors for X, Y, and Z, so for specific conditions. So rather than have to shell out another lot of £100 for a consultation, or 1,200 in this case, mm. you know, the insurance able to pick it up, not because it was for IVF, but because it was for um, looking at endometriosis or looking for to see whether I had uh, fallopian blockages or, or whatnot. So um, those things I found really, really helpful. Because I mean, we must have spent like over 42,000 pounds on IVF wow. um, to get Charles. So yeah, it was, you know, we're not, not all at once. <laughs> We're only journalists, my goodness. Um, but, you know, and I, you know, I love it when my family and other people tell us how to spend our money. Oh, you could buy this. You could buy some new furniture. You could buy a car. I'm thinking, thanks for spending my money. We've got other things that are slightly more important to spend money on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and I'm going to say the PMI was also really, really helpful because um, under the cover that we have, uh, I don't want to, to, to name the, um, the provider. Of course but it's whoever provides the PMI for the FT workplace. So you can find out. <laughs> um, of course, the, the real beggaring thing was when I finally got pregnant after years and years and years of trying, I was really ill and I knew I had shingles. I went to the A&E and the doctor who was half my age said, you haven't got shingles. I mean, the next day it came up so badly. I knew I had shingles. So I went to the, um, GP and she said, oh, you got shingles. She said, where did you go? I said, I went to St. Helia. She said, I'm transferring you to St. George's. You need to go there now and keep away from people. Um, I said, I'm pregnant, by the way. She said, oh, great. So basically the steroids that I'd been taking um, to help reduce the endometriosis mm. had caused my immune system to be suppressed to the extent that my latent, it's a herpes zoster virus isn't it that causes chickenpox the latent virus that stays in your system it came out right singles um i was hooked up to an iv drip in a separate ward in the infectious diseases unit st george's um on the hottest week two weeks pregnant after ivf you know and this you know i knew i had twins early stage twins but i was um I was terrified thinking, how is this going to affect the baby? I had the very best care. Like the, 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 the NHS doctors were amazing. And it was just so, and my, my, my boss was amazing. Um, she really, she really helped me at the time. This is when I was deputy editor of FA. Um, she was so supportive. 
yeah, I spent three nights and four days, three nights now. Mm. And when I came out, it's quite so horrible, of course, because you're so worried about the babies and everything. Mm. Um, my husband just said, "Well, ring the nurses uh, on PMI and just see if there's anything else you need." I rang them. And they said, "Oh, did you stay in the hospital?" Yeah. I said, "But you know, it was for basically shingles." She said, "Oh, every time you spend a night in hospital under your plan, um, you get a hundred pounds." I was like, I'll go back there. <laughs> so <laughs> sign me up now. So um, yeah, that has been also a, a real benefit because just at that time when you're you're planning a family, at the time we thought we we're having twins, we had a whole lifetime of expenses anticipated yeah. ahead ahead of us, plus all the expenses that we're still paying off for the um, uh, for all the treatments, to sort of be given a little bit of financial help at that time. Mm. 300 quid is not to be sniffed at. It doesn't sound a lot in the long scheme of things, but when you are feeling so rotten anyway, you know, when you can't do any freelance, when you know that you're going to go on maternity and you won't be earning any money for a significant portion of that, to be given 300 pounds because you spent three nights in the hospital is a really, it's a really good benefit. And again, these are things that people don't necessarily know about yeah. unless you pick up the phone um, or unless you read your term, how many people read all their benefit state, uh, statements, all the stuff that they get from the employer? Read them. You have no idea what your, you or your clients could be entitled to. Absolutely. I mean, what's one of the things that we do, obviously, as advisors in the protection space, is, you know, is when we speak to people, say immediately, what's your death in service? What is your sick pay? What, what do you have to work? And I had to say, I think people, of all, I think people are getting better, actually, at knowing that kind of thing. But there is quite a few times I'll say to people, you must find this out because, one, I can't misadvise you. <laughs> obviously, if you've already got something like this, I don't want to be uh, doing any kind of double up that we don't need here. Um, but, you know, it's just saying to them, speak to your HR department you know find out is it in your employment contract and then find out if it is in the contract it's just like okay do you have it but if it's not in your contract then that could mean it could potentially be removed so we need to just you know there's so many different things to look at now i think that's um I think that especially as you say, like those extra bits that come with these insurances, you know, that the main bits of the insurances are incredible, but sometimes those extra bits are the things that really, really yeah. stand out and prove to be incredibly helpful. Yeah. I mean, obviously if you are on a, um, if you're on something like a, a workplace, a private medical insurance plan and you leave and you still want to keep it, um, you might find the premiums, are raised exponentially oh, and also it depends on how, how many times you've had to call on it I suppose um, so obviously it's not the cheapest insurance out there which is why if your employer offers it it's probably a really good thing um, it is not a substitute for life insurance no or critical illness cover or critical illness cover or um, well well this is it because uh, we looked at putting our child on the um, on our PMI hmm. but actually there's a there's quite a big cost involved with that Whereas I think if you get like a basic CI policy, I think many insurers, most insurers will cover the child up to what's it, 25K, isn't it? Something like that. As a... It depends. Um, some insurers, you, um, you pick the amount um, with some of them. Some of them is 25K. Some of them, I think, I'm thinking 35K, I think. I think it, it really depends upon, um, it's, it's, well, it's all as well, that's to a maximum percentage yes. of the total sum assured. Yeah. Um, but um, what's interesting as well, obviously, with some insurers, well, one insurer in particular, you can actually bolt on children's critical illness cover to purely a life insurance policy for the adults. So you don't necessarily have to have that yes. massive 
you know, let's be honest, critical illness cover is far more expensive than life insurance. So if someone can't afford the critical insurance themselves, it still may be the potential they can cover the, the child for a certain level as well. Yeah. So, I mean, those are, these are, these are the, the sort of reasons why you need to speak to a really good financial advisor such as yourself um, you. and find out where you, where you maybe have gaps in the protection for you and your family and where you can have the flexibility to do bolt-ons um, if that's affordable or whether you can um, speak to your insurance provider and um, get a slightly better package yeah. um, for not too much, <laughs> uh, for not too much more of the premium. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but I'd say that always check your workplace first. Yeah. Always check. I mean, we don't have life insurance at work, but we get 14 times death in service benefits. Yeah. And like I said, my husband and I work at the same place. So, I mean, I'm always trying to get him to fix the, um, fix a satellite dish on the roof <laughs> and uh he's he's always encouraging me to like clean right at the back of the oven while he's got the gas on just to make sure it works so uh... no that sounds sounds very similar to me and alan alan was um, horrendously ill in august it ended up being oh. you know really really bad food poisoning but to the point where they were saying things that you were just like until we knew what it was there was they were saying anything and everything that was terrifying and um and he found it was food poisoning and i just looked at him and we were talking on video and um, as i'm sure as many people can appreciate based on our humor and i just looked at him i was like could you have not picked something that was on your critical illness plan you know yeah. it was just like <laughs> so I, I don't want you to have a critical illness but seriously <laughs> But sorry, coming towards the end of everything then. So one of the things, um, again, just going back to a little bit of something that you said a little while ago about, you know, when you get these phone calls from people and they're a little bit dodgy. So a few tips that I've given out before to people, and it may sometimes be good for, for advisors. They may already be doing this, but potentially to remind their clients about it. So I got a call a couple of years ago with someone saying straight away, oh, hi, is that Catherine? I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, I'm ringing up from your insurance company. I was like, oh, wonderful. Obviously, <laughs> Being, um, being who I am I was like that's absolutely amazing thank you and um, what is this and they were just like oh well I just want to um, just want to obviously just check it in but it's time to you to review your cover and I was like brilliant and uh, they were like well um, can you just confirm for me the insurer I was like oh sorry do you know how sorry I thought you were the insurer and they're like um, oh well I'm, I'm ringing you know on behalf of the insurer I was like oh so which insurer then and they're like oh well um, it's either Aviva Legal and General Scottish Widows and obviously I was just playing along for quite a while with this person yeah. I felt a little sorry for them in, actually um, but um, but yeah so I have some tips for people as to, and the tips that I did um, that um, I think can help so one of the main things I like to say like tip wise is that that is what's going to be happening is that someone's going to ring up and they're not going to say I am from and then name your insurer. They're going to say I'm calling on behalf of your insurer because that's a different sentence. Um, so I'm calling on behalf of your insurer. And then they may say to you, oh, can you just confirm your, you know, these details? And it's just like, well, if you're calling for my insurer, I wouldn't need to confirm those details. You'd have those details mm -hmm. in front of you. So one of the things that I think is always a good thing, and we did this, we sent out a disclaimer at the beginning, um, well, well, not disclaimer, we sent out a contact to all of our clients near the beginning of lockdown because touch wood, luckily, we weren't notified about it for any of our clients, but we did have colleagues who were having it where their clients were being called and being, it was being said to them, do you realize your life insurance won't pay out for COVID? You need to arrange it through us, which I just think was absolutely astonishing that people could actually well say astonishing that people could do that again it's business but just I just couldn't do it myself but anyway um 
And so the main things are, you know, if someone's ringing you up, you know, say to them, you know, say, can you confirm my policy number for me? If it's a legitimate, if it's your broker, if it's your advisor, if it's the insurer, they have that in front of them. Things like the sum assured on the policy, if you don't obviously know what your policy number is, the premium that you're paying, the company name, the insurer name, and the name of the advisor that supported you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened on my phone call, which really started to, I think, flag to this person is that I asked them for their FCA number. Huh. So I said, you know, I was like, so what's your FCA number? And they're like, well, we don't usually give that out. And I was like, well, really? I was like, because obviously I can search, what's the company name? And can you just confirm, please? Because I need to check that you're a legitimate company. And it wasn't long after that he hung up on me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, you can ask them for that. If they're a legitimate company, they're not going to mind being asked for that number. You know, don't assume if they say, right, okay, so I've got you, you know, your name's Catherine, I can see that you live at XYZ, you know, and with this postcode, and this is your telephone number. That's not to say that it's legitimate, because unfortunately, even if you're not in the telephone book and everything else, your name and your, your name, your number and your address is in quite a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are places that unfortunately will sell your data going on to different companies. Um, and I think there's something where they can actually, there's... I think Alan told me about it, where there's something where people can get copies kind of like what, what someone's direct debits are. And then they can suddenly see from there, like the different things that they have and they just go out and target. Um, and say so the main thing for me that stands out and something to make everyone aware of your clients is just that thing of, you know, like I've had it before where my credit card companies called me and they'll have said, oh, can you confirm this? And I'll go, no, I won't, but I'll ring you back and confirm that you're genuine. And there's been the odd time that someone's gone, well, that's not how this works. And I'm just like, well, fine, then we're not going to talk, are we? <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? No, this isn't, I'm not comfortable. I'm stopping here and I'll call you back. If they're a genuine firm that's calling you, then it will be fine. So we're coming towards the end then, Simone. And we have our truth or lie feature. And this time we're going to be telling our teenage crushes. So I'll go first. I'm going to say that my teenage crush was Johnny Depp. I'm just wondering who yours is. Um, Then my teenage crush was Mark Owen. Oh, very nice. Very nice. It's those dance moves, isn't it? It's the dance moves. The hips don't lie. I know that's Shakira. Yeah, but he moved his hips. It's fine. It's fine. We'll just go with that. We'll move on. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. And thank you so much, Simony, for joining me. Next time, I'm going to be speaking with Ross Linnett from Recite Me. It's a company that provides accessibility tools for websites. It's something that we've integrated onto our website, the Specialist Bureau. And it really is quite incredible what it can do. And also his story as to how he built that software and what he's trying to achieve. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget, if you've listened to this as part of your work, please do contact and claim a CPD certificate. So again, thank you very much, Simony. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.